The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. It's always easy to preach when you follow really great worship like that. Amen? Amen. Isn't that good? Man, God is so faithful. He is so, so good to us. Grab your Bible. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We continue our study. Remember last week, Pastor Paul talked us through uh, what it looked like to enter God's rest as it is in the context of our spiritual life as well as heaven. Today, the writer of Hebrews is transitioning us into another picture of the Old Testament. Now, what what makes Hebrews a challenge, and I'm sure you've already discovered this over the last few weeks, is that if we don't know our Old Testament, it's hard to understand Hebrews. Hebrews walks this parallel tract to what God has done in the Old Testament, bringing in the new covenant in Christ. And so today is like that as well. Today, we're talking about Jesus being our high priest our high priest, or the great high priest, and the challenge that becomes for us today as a church in America in the 21st century is that you and I have quite honestly no context at all in in understanding what a priestly role is and how a a nation might govern in that. Uh, If you look at 1,500 years plus past, before the time of Christ, the nation of Israel functioned with priests that were mediators before God. And so understanding what the priestly role is, is very important to begin to understand what it means that Jesus is our high priest. Uh, Even if you come from a Catholic background where we do have priests, it's not the same. There are some parallels, but it's not the same as the Old Testament model of the priest. And so I'm going to do my very best today to, to walk us through who the Old Testament priest was and what does it mean that Jesus is our New Testament high priest. If you've got your Bible open, let's begin reading together in Hebrews 4, verse 14. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He continues. He says, Now every high priest is chosen from uh, from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now that's key. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That is the father. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we, uh, as we study our word this morning. Father, uh, I want to declare today that I rely solely and completely on you, on your spirit and on the truth of your word. And so I pray that as we study it together, we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us. Help us to interpret your scripture rightly, soberly, and in truth, that it might transform our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now listen, you'll see two pictures in this passage and all through Hebrews uh, of the priestly nature, the priestly role rather, and that is Aaron and Melchizedek, okay? The Bible's going to pull those apart for us and look at what, what it means that Jesus is a high priest sort of after the image or idea of Aaron as well as Melchizedek. But don't get hung up on Melchizedek right now. That'll come in Hebrews chapter 7. So try to, try to block that part out. We're going to get to it. So today, talking about what it means that Jesus is our great high priest after the idea of Aaron, the example of Aaron, first to talk about uh, who Jesus is, let's talk about who Aaron was, more specifically the calling as the earthly high priest. The first aspect that we learn is that he was eligible only through the priestly line of the Levites. You'll see that passage found in Numbers chapter 8 for you to go and look it up. <clears throat> but you have the 12 tribes of Israel, and, uh, and what God did is he spoke to Moses and said, listen, I want you to consecrate, pull out from one of the tribes uh, priests to come from the line of Levi. We call them Levites. Now, let me be clear. Not every Levite was a priest, but if you were a priest, you were a Levite. Does that make sense? Okay, so you couldn't just say if you were, say you were in the tribe of Benjamin, you couldn't grow up as a kid someday and go, you know, I really want to be a priest when I grow up. Moses would have looked at you and you said, sorry, God didn't call you. <laughs> How would you like to be told that? You want to serve God? He says, God did not call you. He calls the Levites to be priests. And specifically, we see there him calling Aaron and his four sons to be priests, okay? The second aspect of the earthly priesthood is that he was chosen among men and did not appoint himself, okay? This wasn't uh, something that we, uh, uh, rather, wasn't something that they would apply to or run for. Uh, I was so happy and rejoiced so much when last November passed, and then things got jockeyed around in our government, and now we're still listening to ads on the radio and TV. It's killing me! It's just killing me. <clears throat> so you couldn't just run for the office of priest. It was, an appointed, it was an appointed position by God through the prophet, okay? So this is the person that God wanted to serve <clears throat> as priest in that time. But listen, this is key to understand. This person clearly, obviously, came out from among the people. This person was a peer. This man was a peer, had a father and a mother and a peer. This is who the earthly line was, and God consecrated them. Number three. They made intercession to God on man's behalf through sacrifices and through offerings. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 8 through 10, you can go read about that. But the tremendous responsibility of the earthly priest was to make intercession uh, to God on our behalf through sacrifices and offerings. So, so mankind has always sinned, right? Nod your heads if you get what I'm talking about. In fact, say out loud, what were the first two human beings that we have recorded in Scripture that sinned? What are their names? Adam and Eve. Very good. Absolutely. And now subsequently, you and I continue to sin. So there has never been a human being on planet Earth who has not sinned, okay? That has not sinned. And so you have man and this, this incredible depravity here, and we have God being 
always perfect, always holy, always righteous. It is an immeasurable chasm between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. Now, if we're not careful, we tend to think of Jesus as perfect and he's sinless. And and maybe we're not like right below him, but we're not that bad, you know? And so we're just like a click or two below him. I'm here to tell you there is no measuring instrument, and I'm talking millions of light years, that would measure the distance between a holy and perfect God and the wretchedness of my and your depravity. So there has always needed to be a mediator. And this is what the priest's job was, to mediate between God and man, to make sacrifices, to atone for the sins of the people. So God called them out. He consecrated the priest out of the line of Levites, and he showed them in Scripture very, very clear worship. This is how you ought to come to the holy place, and this is the offering for the ram, and this is the offering for the goat, and this is the burnt offering, and this is the wave offering, and this is the incense offering. And they were called to make these offerings for the nation to atone. They would bring a sacrifice to atone for the people. Now, this is a tough position, I'll just tell you. Uh, I don't think anybody at the time would want this job. We may think, man, it must be great to be called as a high priest. No, it was not great. If you did not offer the sacrifice in the way that God has designed and prescribed, you died. Aaron's two children, Nahab and Abihu, died because they offered a wrong burnt sacrifice. God did not take lightly or small the atoning sacrifice for sin. But that was his primary job, was to make this intercession for the people. The fourth thing we learn about the the earthly high priest is that he had to first make sacrifices for his own sin. You see that in Leviticus 16. But we also read it here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3, where he's speaking of the weakness of mankind. He says in verse 3, because of this, he, that is the the high priest, uh, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So you're called to the priest. Here's Aaron, comes out of the Levite, makes intercession, becomes a mediator between God and man, makes sacrifices and offerings to atone for the sinfulness of mankind, to the holiness of God. And we see this done by a sinful human instrument to bring a sacrifice before God. Okay, does that make sense? So that is the sort of cliff notes of the earthly high priest. The earthly high priest was designed to do what God appointed, where he appointed it, at the time that he appointed it. It was a servant of God role. So now in Hebrews 4 and 5, he's calling Jesus this high priest. And he's paralleling the ministry of Aaron to Jesus. And this is where it gets really, really good. So what are some of the aspects of the high priest Jesus? Well, first we find that the the scripture calls him in verse 14, a great high priest. He calls him a great high priest. Nowhere in the Old Testament did he call Aaron or Nadab or Abihu or Eleazar or any of his children or any other subsequent a great high priest. So the writer of Hebrews is now beginning to to, to understand, hey, listen, as we parallel these two, they're not peers. Aaron and Jesus are not sort of coexisting peers. Jesus is above Aaron. Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's. It's greater than Aaron's, okay? So we need to understand that this morning. He calls him the great high priest. So what are some aspects of Jesus as our great high priest? The first is this, that he was appointed high priest by the Father God. 
Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was appointed high priest by the Father. Of course, right now I know some of you are thinking, Really, Jim, you're not going to make blanks for us? I decided I'm not going to coddle you like Paul. It's been too soft around here for too long. Okay? You got to actually write now. Some of you already have the claw hand. You'll be fine. I, I trust you. Um, but listen, so as Jesus is appointed by the high priest, uh, 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 as high priest by the Father, here's what you need to understand. God told Moses to appoint Aaron. So Aaron was called by God to the position, but listen to the difference. Aaron had an earthly father and mother. Jesus had a mother, the Virgin Mary, but say it out loud with me, who is Jesus' father? God. God. So in the atoning sacrifice and the call of the priest in the Old Testament, God took from among the peers to offer this sacrifice. And now in the New Testament to make mediation between man and God, he's decided, hey, I'm sending you my very own son to call as high priest. And we're going to pull that apart in just a few moments. But this is pretty profound. This is incredible that he would call his own son to this call of priest in our life. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus did not descend from the tribe of Levi. He was not a Levite. He was actually from the tribe of Judah, meaning Jesus' lineage can be traced back to King David. So why is this significant? One, it fulfills prophecy, but it's significant, and I believe it's because what God is doing is he's ushering in the fulfillment of the Old Testament through the holiness of God, calling through the call of the Levites, but now the New Testament fulfilled in Jesus is that he is our forever high priest. He is our forever high priest. He actually says it here in uh, verse 6. It says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get into. So here, Jesus is a high priest, not of the tribe of Levi, but simply by the calling and the the providence of God in sending his son. Now, listen. Uh, the passage here in verse 5, you are my son, today I've begotten you, comes out of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And I don't think that what we're referring to here is Jesus' birth. When it says that you are my son, I have begotten you, it's beginning to lay the groundwork of of Jesus' qualifications as a high priest. It's his resurrection. It's his resurrection. When God beget Jesus, it's out of his resurrection that he died, was completely dead, buried, and three days later rose and ascended to the Father. Colossians 3, chapter 1 says that he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and for me. Isn't that his high priest role? It's a really, a really incredible thing that God has beget him in that, in that passage. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 5 and turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think, puts the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ probably the clearest that we have in Scripture. There's, there's several other great spots. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. But this is a really great picture. If you've got 1 Timothy 2, pick it up in verse 5. He says, now, for there is one God, and now listen to this, the connection, and there is one mediator between God and man, And it's the man, say it out loud, Christ Jesus. Everybody say amen. Amen. There's one God and one mediator, and it is God. 
God is the mediator between the Father. It's just, and your brain is going to start hurting. Your eyes are going to go cross, I promise you. It's just going to confuse you. This is where the Trinity becomes very important. The, the, the person of the Son makes mediation to the person of the Father in the Trinity. Does that make sense? So he is one God, and he is the mediator between God and man, which brings us to our second important role of Jesus as our great high priest, and that he's both a ministering high priest and the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Part of what the high priest did was to mediate, or rather to minister. The priest would deal with disputes and, and counseling matters and honestly assumed a lot of the roles of a pastor or a shepherd today. But see, we, we see now that Jesus is both a ministering high priest as well as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now think about it. I told you a moment ago that when Aaron brought sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, he had to bring the actual sacrifice. He had to inspect it, and he had to make sure that the bull or the lamb or whatever it would be uh, was spotless and pure. If if he would have brought a sacrifice that was not spotless or pure, immediately he would lose his life. He would. So he would not be the sacrifice because he himself is sinful and weak. So in order to bring an atonement for the nation, he had to take the sacrifice, he had to bring it before God and offer before God an atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, in the New Testament, for uh, John chapter 1, the Word becomes flesh, Jesus comes out of heaven, comes to earth. Now, God himself has not only ministered to you and me, but he has become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is, this is an amen moment. This is incredible. And again, I, we don't fully understand it. There, there's no way for us to, I think, fully grasp this in its power because we're not an Old Testament Jew. But as an Old Testament Jew, this would have been unbelievable. Unbelievable. This would have been one of those moments, talking it through with somebody, where the person would have been blown away by this incredible concept that God, would atone for my sin. Because God has always been holy and perfect and righteous, right? So the Old Testament Jew looking at God, I mean, it was, he was untouchable. He was the God of judgment oftentimes and, and so far away and just really, really difficult to comprehend. So now in Christ, understanding that he is our priest is, to, to, to say life transforming is an understatement. It was incredible to understand that Jesus is not only ministering to us, but he alone is the atoning sacrifice for us. He is the pure and spotless lamb. Third aspect of Jesus' high priestly nature is that he showed himself worthy of the office of our great high priest. Because God never just sort of says something to us and does not give us right evidence. He shows us how he is worthy of the office as your and my high priest. He proves it to us. Let's look at verse 14 together again. He says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus passed through the heavens. He came out of heaven. The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He died. He was resurrected. He goes to the Father and ascends in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And he ascends to the Father at his right hand to make intercession for you and me. Aaron couldn't have done this. 
Aaron could not have passed through the heavens. He was a human just like you and just like me. So now the Hebrews writer is saying, okay, it's like the same sacrifice of atonement in Aaron is like that, except that the great high priest, Jesus, he is so divine and so God, he passes through the heavens. And he's laying the groundwork for us to trust him in the office of high priest. He's not just... uh, a good man or a good person that some would like to sort of suppose that Jesus was. He passed through the heavens. Only God gets to pass through the heavens. When we die, if we know Jesus, we go to heaven, but we don't pass through the heavens. We're staying there. We don't come back as angels. That's not in the Bible. That's made up somewhere. That's not scripture, okay? We do not become angels. Angels, angels are God's created being, that is not us, okay? That's side note, but maybe someone needed to learn that today. We're not, we don't become angels. So we don't even get to pass through the heavens once we die. Neither could Aaron. Only Jesus passes through the heavens. The second thing that Jesus does to show uh, uh, proof of him being worthy of the office is that he remained perfect and sinless despite great earthly temptation and suffering. He remained perfect and sinless despite great earthly temptation and suffering. If you've got Hebrews 4 open, look at with verse 15 with me. He says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 2. A passage we read a few weeks ago, but let's review it again. Hebrews chapter 2, let's pick it up in verse 17. He says, Therefore, that is Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. I mean, he had to be human like us when he was down on earth. So that he might become a merciful and faithful, what? High priest. In the service of God, to make propitiation, or means substitute, For the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Let's read one more passage and we'll link all three of these together. Hebrews 5, verse 8. It says about Jesus although he was a son, he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered what he suffered. So what qualifies Jesus to be my high priest? He endured suffering and temptation and yet was without sin. Now let me tell you, I think so many of us get, get stuck in uh, <clears throat> some, some wrong thinking and some struggle here in that we often will think, and if we're honest, we think, well, God can't really relate to me. He doesn't really know. Has he really, you know, has he really been tempted like I've been tempted? I mean, he didn't have the internet when, when he was uh, on earth. And we start thinking, Jesus can't really understand or relate to me because he's never felt the temptation that I felt. Okay, so let's just do a little work here first. When you start thinking that your temptation is worse than what Jesus ever felt, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a desert, stop eating and drinking for 40 days, have no place to sleep, have Satan in the flesh whispering in your ear for 40 days, and you tell me if your temptation is worse than his. That's insane. 40, I can't go 40 minutes without eating. And I'm not even joking. I got, it's terrible. 
40 days, he goes without eating. He fasts, and Satan himself, not one of his demons, Satan himself shows up, and he tempts Jesus for a month and a half. We get mad because we can't endure temptation for an hour. Trust me when I say to you, we have no idea to the depth of Jesus' temptation. He suffered. He doesn't just mean he suffered like, oh man, that's really hard to say no to that. No, no, no. It was suffering. He suffered in his temptation. So Jesus understands. Oh, he understands your suffering. You might say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't understand some of the relational struggles that I've had in my life, and he doesn't understand being wounded by people. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a friend who's falsely accused you, sold you out to the authorities to be murdered? I haven't. Doesn't happen, right? So Jesus faced death because one of his own close friends sold him out to be killed. One of his own close friends, Peter, he sins against him so much, he says, get behind me, Satan. And on the greatest day of Jesus' suffering and trial, they split and run. He understands your relational struggle. You might say, gosh, you know, I don't think Jesus understands. He's only, he only lived 33 years. He was God. I don't think he understands pain. I don't think he understands the physical pain that I endure every day. And the pain that I go through and the hardship and the difficulty of disease and, and struggle. Go back and read how Romans killed people. And how Jesus had to endure being strapped to a log while they whipped him with a cat of nine tails, which is hooks of bone that rip the flesh off of your ribs. And they jam inch plus long uh, uh, thorns into his head until he gushes blood and stabs him. And as he stands on a cross, letting the pressure of nails in his wrists and the weight of his chest crush his lungs, Jesus understands pain. He understands pain. So for us to understand, what does it mean that Jesus is my great high priest? We've got to understand that he understands everything that you're going through. Every possible thing that you struggle with, he gets it. He knows it. He understands it in a big, big, big way. And the Bible says that he goes and he makes intercession to the Father on our behalf. Let me ask you a question. So say you're at a company and you've done something really, really dumb. And the CEO finds out about it and you're in a lot of hot water. And so your friend and ex-coworker calls you on the phone and they say, I heard you're in some hot water with the CEO. And you say, yes, I, I made some pretty big mistakes. And you start to remember throughout your, your uh, time on the phone that your friend actually got fired by this CEO from doing even worse things. And so you're talking along and all of a sudden your friend says, oh, you know what? I'll tell you what. I've actually been in the CEO's office before, and, and, and so I kind of know the guy. Let me go, and I'm going to put in a good word for you. Huh? What do you think your response is going to be? Please, I beg of you, do not do that. You never let your friend do that, because you wouldn't want somebody to, to go and be the mediator between, between you and the boss who was a wreck. So guess what? The Scripture tells us that Jesus suffered in his temptation— he endured all the things that we endured, yet remained perfect and sinless. Friends, I want him to be my advocate to the Father. I want him, him alone, to be my advocate to the Father. Third one that we see about Jesus' high priestly nature is we see that he has divine and complete compassion. Divine and complete 
compassion. Verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So let me tell you what the Greek word for sympathize means, because we live in a prideful world. And in fact, many of us have been guilty of saying, I don't need your sympathy. Someone tries to say something nice to you, and they says, I don't need your sympathy. That's the height of pride, by the way, because Jesus sympathizes. Let me tell you what sympathy actually means. It refers to a person who is affected by the same suffering, the same impressions, the same emotions as another, or who undergoes identical trials and finally sympathizes with this other person who is in some sort of trouble and has pity. So when the Bible says that Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with your weaknesses, this is the height of divine and complete compassion. Now let me see if we can work out a quick theology really fast. Here's where you and I get in trouble. We get some really bad theology that that we begin to conjure up in our minds. And here's what we oftentimes do. We don't go to God as we should because of our weaknesses and our sin, and here's why. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we think of God as sitting on his throne in heaven like this, saying, oh, I dare you to come to me. I saw what you did last week. I saw what you looked at this morning. I saw what you said to your spouse. How dare you come to me? And we think that if we come to God in all of our weakness and all of our sin, that he's going to look down on us with a furled brow and say, I see what you do, and I told you to knock it off. And so what do we do? We end up shrinking back. We end up shrinking back from God, and we run away as if we can hide from him. But we run away from him because our theology that we have developed through fear, by the way, is we think that God doesn't want anything to do with us unless we clean our life up. But see, in the scriptures this morning, he has a divine and a complete compassion. There's a strong difference between trying to imagine yourself going through somebody's pain and going through it yourself. I have a personal confession to make to you this morning. This may shock, surprise some of you. I personally have never experienced the pain of childbirth. I I just haven't. I just haven't. I've never experienced it, right? I'm a guy. I've never experienced it before. So when one of you ladies is going through it, I can try to imagine the pain. I can try to imagine what it is that you're feeling, but I can't. I just can't. I can't figure it out. It just doesn't make sense. I can't even be there. But some of you women who have endured one, two, or five, or six, when you see one of our young ladies have a baby, you know exactly how to pray for them. You know exactly what they're going through. You know what they felt. You know what they experienced in every possible way, the physical, the emotional, all of that. Because you've been there. You understand it. You know it. You know how to pray. You write cards. When you talk, I've heard you talk. When you talk, you talk the lingo of it. I don't even know. It's the lingo, you know? Because you can sympathize having been there. Listen, <clears throat> Jesus can sympathize in a divine and complete compassion with everything that you and I go through, every single thing that we go through. Lastly, he became the source of our eternal salvation. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. It says that, I took the point directly from the scripture. In being made perfect, he became the source, excuse me, of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus is our high priest fully understands what you've gone through. 
And he made a way for you to have eternal life. He made a way. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven which men can be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some think that that's small-mindedness, and how could he be so narrow? It's not narrow. God himself opened his hands to the universe, the whole world, and says, come to me. Anybody who believes, I will take into my family and be, and be in heaven. He's made this wide open for people. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everybody say praise God. Jesus became sin for me. He substituted in my place. He kicked me off the stand in the courtroom and he sat down and said, I will bear the punishment for you. Is Jesus qualified to be a high priest? You better believe he is. You better believe he's qualified to be your high priest, your mediator on behalf of God. He is qualified because of his goodness. So there's two responses this morning. Let's try to hit them strong but quickly. Here's the first thing. We find it in chapter four, or chapter 4, verse 14 again. Let's read it for the last time. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Our very first response to the great high priest Jesus in our life is to hold fast to your confession of faith. Stay strong. Don't quit. The, the letter of the Hebrews here, in the context, we know that they're undergoing some trial. They're undergoing uh, uh, persecution and trial. And they're being tempted to step out of their faith in Jesus and to go back to the Levitical system. Doing so would renounce Jesus. He's saying to them, I know it's hard. Don't quit. Why? Because Jesus, your high priest, has got you. Don't quit on him. Stay the course. Persevere. The Greek word hold fast literally means to be strong or to take possession of something. He's saying, grab a hold of your faith, pull it in tight, make it your own, make your faith your own. Don't throw in the towel, don't quit. What does quitting look like in our faith? Certainly, it looks like the boldness of renouncing your faith, but let's be honest. Most of us don't stand on a box and say, Today I now renounce my faith. No one does that. In fact, we do something akin to it, but what we end up doing is we say, <clears throat> I'm still a Christian, but I'm not going to try to serve God anymore. I, d- I don't pray unless somebody's in the hospital that I love <clears throat> or that I'm in, I'm in trouble or I need something. I don't read my Bible unless it's like, you know, Psalm 23 to make me feel better, but I don't, I don't read it to know it, to study it, to live it. We, we say, I'm still a Christian, but we, we don't want to go to church unless somebody drags us there. And we start believing the lie that I don't have to be, uh, go to church to be a Christian. Well, you don't have to be, but if you love Jesus, you will want to be here. The Bible teaches that very clearly, that if we love Jesus, we will want to be in worship with the body of Christ. We, we say, well, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian, but we stop letting God sanctify us. We don't guard what we say anymore. We have a foul mouth don't guard our actions and how we treat people. We don't try to get that sin that's sort of grabbing a hold of us and won't let go, that addiction. We don't try anymore. We just throw in the towel and we say, well, I'm only human. So, so we didn't quit by words. 
But if we're honest, we sure quit by action, didn't we? We sure quit by action. We're not giving him our life. We're not waking up in the morning saying, Lord, today is your day. We don't pray about the important things. We don't pray about our life. We don't give it over to him. We certainly don't share the gospel with lost people around us. What does it look like to quit? That's what it looks like to not hold fast your confession. And lastly, this morning, the only right response is that we boldly approach God's throne and receive mercy, grace, and help in our time of need. Look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 4. Because of this truth about Jesus that we've just got done talking about, he says, Let us then with confidence, some passages say boldness, with confidence and boldness, draw near, run close to the throne of grace not the throne of judgment, not the throne of criticism, to the throne of grace, that we may receive what? Mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. We often misquote this passage. And we say, see, we're supposed to pray to God when we have a big need in our life. I lost my job and I need to pay my bills. That's, that's good to pray for. Don't misunderstand. But in the context, do you know what our need is? It's weakness and temptation. Did you know that's your biggest need in your life is weakness and temptation? So he's saying, as you experience the weakness and frailty of your flesh and the temptation and draw of sin in your life, draw close to the throne of grace. Draw close to it. My greatest need in my life is not a nicer house. It's not a nicer vehicle. It's not more money. I don't need more money. It's not a bigger 401k. It's not better friends. It's not any of that. My singular greatest need in all of life is the mercy and the grace of God for my own weakness and my own depravity. Would you agree with that this morning? That's my greatest need. Friends, I am messed up. True story. I have problems, okay? I need the mercy and the grace, and I suspect you do too. I suspect that you do too. This is the context of approaching. It doesn't say approach God's throne and receive the judgment. We think that God's just sitting there with his fist clenched, ready to wallop us, when really what he's saying is, if you'd just come to me, if you would just come to me, I will do a love kind of work that you have never experienced in your life. Some of you this morning are thinking, you know, I just can't come to God because it's been... I mean, I haven't cracked my Bible in years. I haven't been to church. I hate going to church. I don't like going to church. I haven't cracked my Bible. I hardly ever pray. I say what I shouldn't say. I do what I shouldn't do. You think I drink what I shouldn't drink. I smoke what I shouldn't smoke. And you just sort of have all this on you. And so what the devil's doing is saying to you, yeah, don't don't go to God. He's mad at you. But listen, don't miss this. What God is saying to you this morning is, this is how I will respond if you will come to me. But you have to come to me in humility. You have to come to the throne. The throne is not going to come run you down and hold you in a headlock. You go to the throne boldly and confidently and say, God, here's my weakness. Here's my sin. Here's my temptation. Here's my brokenness. Here's my weakness. And then it says that we will receive mercy and grace to help in our time of needs. Isn't God good this morning? Have you been approaching his throne of grace Or have you been running in fear, afraid of the loving Father? I ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Maybe you this morning have been trying to please God by your performance. 
And you need to know this morning that your performance will never please God. Your faith will. Your faith will please God. And it takes faith to go to the throne of grace to receive mercy and receive grace in our time of need. Is Jesus the high priest of your life? Have you made him the high priest? Do you go to the high priest? Maybe some of you this morning need the freedom of forgiveness. You need his mercy. You need his grace. And you're just so heavy and weighed down with the weight of your weakness that you need to come and give it to the Father. Give it through Jesus. And let him rescue you and redeem you and surround you with his grace. He sympathizes with your weakness. Will you go to him? Father, in a time of response this morning, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would respond in faith to you, our great high priest, the picture of love, the picture of atonement, the sacrifice for us. Thank you for what you did for us, God. I pray that we would respond in faithfulness and obedience. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.